0: Good evening to you. If you've got your Bible with you, be opening up to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, that is where we'll find a beginning place for our study together this evening. Reagan, did the slide advancer disappear? There we go. <laughs> Thank you, man. And just so you know, Eric having to be up here and working on the computer, that wasn't his fault. That was my fault. So I'll take the blame for that. I was adding in another slide or two, but thank you so much for making the choice to be here with us this evening. Texas high school football hadn't started up yet, so you didn't have a ton of options yet on a Friday night, but there's still other things you could have been doing, and you made the choice to be here. I appreciate that. That means a lot to me. I know it means a lot to the brethren here. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you. I, I, I told a couple of you that uh, I had a story. Mentioned some preachers I was going to share. I was last in a meeting here. Reagan mentioned in 2013. Before that, I think I was a speaker on a on a I think on a VBS one night. I was speaking on the the leadership of Joshua. I remember the sermon. And here's why I remember the sermon. that I would have been 19, 20 years old somewhere around in there. I got the invitation to preach, and I get up here to preach, and I just start surveying the audience before I start. And there's Randy Harshbarger, who is my mentor, the one who worked with me. And then there was Brother Harold Hancock, Then I think sitting over in this area was Brother James Adams. And then Brother Oliver Murray was was there. I think Brother W.R. Jones was there that night. I think Brother Luther Bolenbarker Barker was there too. Leon Goff was doing a morning VBS at Nacogdoche, so he came over and was there tonight. I tell you, by the time I got up here, I was sweating bullets. I wanted to just sit down and have somebody else come up here. And preach because goodness knows there were enough guys who were here that night who could have gone up and done a much better job uh, than I did. But each one of them were so very, very gracious to me. That is a memory that that I will cherish for years. And it's because of this church here. And I appreciate you guys for giving me that opportunity. We're going to be in Acts chapter five in just just a few moments. But we're gonna we're gonna introduce our study and begin. Uh, Begin here in, in in this place. We live in a society and in a world that has all of the wrong answers. We were talking some about this at dinner tonight. Uh, that there are so many ideas and concepts that have just fundamentally changed the course of the last five or ten years, haven't they? Right. We have seen our society morph our culture change into something that many of us are uncomfortable with and many of us just don't even recognize from years gone by. Uh, you think about the, the conceptualization of an animal. That shift, and that, that's not unique to our time. Uh, that really, I, I guess in some ways, came upon the American consciousness back in 1925 with the Scopes Monkey Trial. Clarence Darrow, William Jennings Bryan out there in Tennessee the teacher who was put on trial for teaching evolution, this really gained a a foothold, became a source of stir in our culture. But that really cemented in the public consciousness the idea that this idea of macroevolution was out there, and perhaps we ought to be considering humans more as animals than a direct creation of God. The definition of marriage has and still is shifting, right? Right? Uh, we've seen that over the course of, of our lifetimes, even just in the past decade or two, that marriage in our culture, it seems, is no longer between a man and a woman. And at that, it seems to be shifting even more, that it's no longer necessarily even one man and one woman. You have more than two people. It seems to be the way that we're going with that. Be a man, be a woman, be whatever you might self-identify as, which brings us to our next one, right? The, the very definition of gender is shifting. Uh, that it's no longer rooted in biology, but now it's more or less whatever that I feel, whatever I think. That's, that's who I am. That's, that's what our culture presents to us, isn't it? It's no surprise then that, that we feel uncomfortable in our culture, that we feel perhaps like we don't belong in our culture this whiplash of change that's been going on in our society. And what are we told all throughout that? Christians are the foolish ones, right? We have the antiquated definitions. We're clinging to a bygone culture and bygone values. We just need to get with the times. That what we believe, what we hold to, it's foolish that it's not rational, that it's not logical. you heard things like that before. I know, I know that I have. How did we get to this point? How did we get to the point where what we think and what we feel is the determining factor behind truth? How did we get to the point where truth is really a negotiable idea? Is there truth? How did we get to the point where we're looking at humanity and we're esteeming humanity of no greater value than an animal? It's not something that we just woke up one day and thought, hey, monkeys, apes, orangutans, that's the answer, right? This shifts over time. I want us to talk about that a little bit this evening. The first part of the study, I'll freely admit, we're we're dealing with some more philosophical and logical context, and so if we get 15 minutes in and we haven't looked at a lot of Scripture, just hold on because we're going to get there, I promise. But I want us to to, to trace in, in some way how it is where we got, or how it is that we got where we are today. How did we get to this point? Three big philosophical ideas I want us to to consider right here. The first is uh, the philosophy of radical individualism. You have to remember all of these terms. There will be a test later, okay? No. Uh, Just to help us kind of get our minds around what we're talking about. Radical individualism, which is simply the idea that what an individual wants or wills is the highest good. Whatever you want... Whatever you desire, that is the highest, that is the preeminent desire. And so, pursue that. Seek that. It's the mottos we see in our society today, right? YOLO, you only live once, right? Or we've got FOMO, right? The fear of missing out. You live for whatever makes you feel good, whatever you identify as being the best. But what does that end up doing? Uh, Family, community, culture, society, all of that is sacrificed, isn't it? It's no longer about any group, any unit larger than myself. It becomes all about me. And when has that ever served a society well? You do whatever makes you feel the best, whatever you want to do. Of course, we recognize as Christians, and this is not a persuasive argument to our friends uh, who might be wrapped up in this, who are uh, skeptics, who are agnostics, who are atheists. The the answer to to this reasoning with them is not just to quote Scripture to them. I hope we recognize that. There are some more fundamental Bible studies, more fundamental studies just on God that need to happen But if we're just reasoning with ourselves as Christians for a moment, we recognize that as Christians, our ultimate obedience has to be towards God, right? We've got to obey God rather than men. That's the idea we get here in Acts chapter 5. Are you there with me in verse 29? Peter answered and said, they're trying to shut down the apostles, trying to tell them don't teach, don't speak of Jesus of Nazareth, don't teach in his name. Peter says, you tell us whatever you feel you need to tell us. And yes, I know you gave us strict orders not to continue teaching his name, but we must obey God rather than men. And then Peter goes on to affirm the resurrection and say that he's going to keep on teaching that. God demands ultimate and absolute obedience to him. And in whatever sphere of influence we're living at the time, God expects us To be useful in that sphere. It's the story, it's rather the principle we get at the end of the story of the Good Samaritan, right? There in Luke chapter 10. Who then was a neighbor to the man who fell among the thieves? Well, the one who showed kindness to him. And then what does Jesus say after that? You go and do the same. In our sphere of influence, be it large, be it small, God expects us to be useful in that sphere which means I take the focus off of whom? Take the focus off of me. And I'm looking for ways to be helpful and to be useful to other people. Like I said, that, that's more a, more a thought for us as Christians. But let's step back and let's just examine this philosophy for a moment. Is radical individualism the answer? I mean, we are presented with these philosophical views of the world, and we are told this is the manner of life to pursue. This is the course of life that will bring happiness and peace and fulfillment. But is radical individualism really the answer? That you seek your best and your will and your good above anything and everything else? I mean, if we're just approaching this from a logical and a rational perspective, what happens when the will of one individual conflicts with my will? We we were talking tonight at dinner and and today at lunch about one of the things that I do in my life when I'm not preaching. I don't wear a suit and tie all the time. Uh, As I mentioned last night, I love soccer, but... Involved in soccer all my life. And one of the things that I do now is I referee soccer. And there has been more than one occasion coming out of a soccer game with East Texas high schools, I've had to have a police escort back to my vehicle. What happens when the will of one individual conflicts with someone else's will? I want to live. I don't want to get a bloody nose in the parking lot walking back to my truck. I don't want to have to rack up those hospital bills, but there is a dad out there who's pretty sure I am blind and mentally deficient, and the way that I'm going to learn something and see better is for him to smack me upside the head a couple of times. What happens when his will and my will conflict? Who wins out there? And, and, and that's an extreme example, I get it, but it illustrates the point, doesn't it? When I've got my will and seeking my good over here, but you've got your will and you're seeking your good over here, and your good and my good start to conflict, what do we do now? What's the answer? Logically and rationally, from this philosophical perspective, what's the answer? Or think about the greater inconsistency in radical individualism. Is it wrong to tell someone that his or her choices or beliefs are wrong or immoral? Can you do that in radical individualism? Can I tell somebody logically? Can I tell somebody don't beat me up? Don't assault me? Don't take my stuff? Don't take my things? Radical individualism would say it is wrong to tell someone that his or her choices or beliefs are wrong or immoral. Well, suppose I don't hold to the philosophy of radical individualism. Am I wrong? And if I am wrong, could you tell me? I mean, th- th- this is this is turtles all the way down here. Uh, this is a, a, a domino line of thinking on example here, that if one falls, what happens? one falls, they all fall down. What is lifted up to us is such a promising philosophy, and really the the manner of life that we ought to be pursuing ends up being pretty empty, doesn't it? Okay, well, radical individualism isn't the answer. Okay. Well, if that's not how we got here, or if that's not the, the chosen philosophy for how we got here, Let's think about something else. What about relativism? Relativism, which simply says that meaning and truth are relative, so that what is right for one person may be wrong for another person. I'm not so much concerned about us discussing meaning, I'm more concerned about that that third word, truth. Whether we like it or not, our society is built upon the foundation of truth. The cars that we drive, the technology that we use, it's all built upon truth. In a base 10 system, one plus one is always what? Always two. That's truth, it's absolute. And it's fundamental to who we are, to how we live, to how we interact. We may not hear it spoken in, in this way, but here are some phrases we're, we're more prone to hear. You can't tell me what to do. How many times do we hear that from our little brother or little sister when we told them to stop doing something right? You can't tell me what to do. Okay, I can't. Mom and Dad can how about this? There is no such thing as truth, or there's no such thing as absolute truth. You take any sort of a philosophy course, you're going to hear some idea like that at some point, aren't you? How do you respond to somebody who says there is no such thing as truth, or there's no such thing as absolute truth? Well, You might talk about mathematics and say, well, I'm not talking about math talking about bigger ideas than that. Okay? Let's jump in for a moment. Sometimes worldviews are more philosophical in nature, right? That's the case with relativism. And so sometimes the answer to these worldviews isn't necessarily to go to the Bible and start placing our finger on passages and reading them off to somebody. I'm never saying that Bible study is a bad thing. I am saying to our friends who are more skeptical and agnostic and atheistic, to go to our friends like that and to start quoting Bible verses at them is not really going to do a whole lot at that moment. If I don't believe that the Bible is inspired, if I don't believe that the Bible is significant, is quoting verses going to help me? So how do we examine these philosophies in with our friends who might come from a different perspective? Well, let's just examine it logically and rationally. Can relativism sustain itself? That's the question. Somebody says, okay, well, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Is that true? That's an absolute statement. That's a truth statement, isn't it? To say that there is no such thing as absolute truth is to affirm an absolute, is to affirm a truth. That is a truth claim. So uh, can we have A be A and not A at the same time? Can I be Tyler and not Tyler at the same time? Of course not. This philosophy, this rationale, it's on some shaky ground, isn't it? Somebody says, well, you can't tell me what to do. Okay, that's fine, but what are you doing? You're doing that very thing, aren't you? There is a strong relationship between relativism and radical individualism. And When you take it to its ultimate end, and I'm not saying everyone who buys into these philosophies does, but when you take it to its logical conclusion, you end up with lawlessness. The idea that you can't tell me what to do and I'm going to live for my greatest good and whatever I want to do, that taken to its logical conclusion doesn't leave room for societal rules, doesn't leave room for cultural mores or anything like that. It leads to I'm going to do whatever I want to do and that's lawlessness. There is no greater governing authority than me. And to you, there's no greater governing authority than you. Of course, we recognize as Christians, we're called away from that. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 6 is going to say, what, what agreement has light and darkness? What agreement has righteousness with, with lawlessness? Relativism is not the answer either, is it? Affirming that there is no truth, falls on itself as a weak and a beggarly idea. Okay, then. If it's not radical individualism, if it's not relativism, it's sexual freedom, right? If it feels good, do it. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's the idea that our bodies belong to us my body belongs to me and that I'm going to do with it whatever I want to and if it feels good if it feels pleasurable if it's enjoyable I'm going to do it I can use my body in whatever way I want because fundamentally it's mine and to, to, to some degree at least from some perspective I can buy into the idea from some perspective that our body is our own. But as we dig deeper into Scripture, that that argument becomes more nuanced. It's not the idea that my body is just out there for anyone and I have no control over myself, no, but rather it is the idea that my body is given to me ultimately by God and I am a steward of what He has given me. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 down here. In verse 18, talking, in fact, about sexual activity and sexual immorality, Paul would say, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. For those of us who are Christians, this perspective is a non-starter. I can't buy into this idea of sexual license and follow Jesus at the same time. Those two worldviews, those two lifestyles are completely and wholly incompatible. This is what our culture presents to us, isn't it? You can't watch a TV show, you can't listen To the radio, you can't listen to music without having this thrown in your face. That sexual freedom, sexual license, is the ultimate and personal fulfillment. This will make you happy. This will set you at peace. This is where you will find happiness and fulfillment. is by casting off the, the shackles of a patriarchal society, by throwing off the bonds of Christianity, and just by living your life for whatever makes you feel good in your body. But Let's just boil this down to the root question. Sexual activity really the ultimate in human fulfillment? I mean, the, our culture has idolized sexual activity. But let's really put that to the test. Is that really where fulfillment is found? Let, let me ask you two rational, logical questions here. What if I'm a person who's been traumatized by sexual activity? What if I'm a person who's been traumatized by sexual activity? What does this worldview offer me? Not much, does it? Suddenly a philosophy that is so full of hope and promise really, really starts to crumble. Do you see the The incompatibility that's out there, the cognitive dissonance between the media that our culture consumes and, for example, jumping back a few years, the Me Too generation and the Me Too movement. Our society, our culture can't figure it out, meeting themselves, coming and going Because if I've been traumatized by sexual activity, this whole idea, this whole concept, this whole worldview holds absolutely nothing for me. But we're told this is where we're going to find fulfillment and peace and happiness and belonging? Or what if sexual activity just isn't a possibility for me? Maybe medically, maybe because of the relationship that I am, for whatever reason. What if sexual activity is not a possibility for me? Where's the promise? Where's the meaning? Where's the fulfillment in this worldview? Suddenly, the most important aspect of human existence, at least that's what we're told, is cratered for those who can't enjoy it, or for those who have been traumatized by it, Or for those who can't receive the end result of it. Here's what I mean by that. You break down the atheistic worldview. A number of different ways to do that, but I want you to listen to what Richard Dawkins has to say in his book, River Out of Eden expresses kind of this sexual revolution worldview. There is at bottom no design, he says, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pointless indifference. Man, that sounds like a wonderful existence, doesn't it? We are machines, he says, for propagating DNA. We're not going to get explicit tonight. Those of you who can read can figure out what he's talking about there. It is every living Objects, that includes you and me, soul, reason, soul, reason, or being. That's not a preacher selectively quoting and mischaracterizing what an atheist has to say. That's an atheist saying exactly what he believes. We are machines for propagating DNA as every living object's sole reason for being. What if you've been traumatized by sexual activity? What if you can't engage in sexual activity? What if you can't propagate DNA? What's left in this worldview for you? for me? We're told this is, this is the life, this is the way, this is where you'll find meaning and happiness and pur- purpose. Comes up empty, doesn't it? Comes up real empty. Is absolute sexual license the answer? Well, again, let, let's just look at the, the evidence that's available to us. Uh, there is one notable study that indicates that females who are sexually active before marriage tend to be more depressed than abstinent girls by a rate of 3 to 1. You want to talk about reasons for uh, the, the explosion of depression and anxiety in our world today. I'm not saying this is the only reason, don't get me wrong. But there's some relationship here. Or how about this? that neurologists have identified a link between previous sexual partners and the ability to find sexual satisfaction in future relationships. Uh, this is the house of cards coming tumbling down. right? And, and, and This isn't, the second quotation here, think what you want about Heritage Foundation. Second quote isn't from Heritage Foundation. It's not from Focus on the Family. It's not from Charles Dobson or Chuck Swindoll or anybody like that. Neurologists have identified a link between previous sexual partners and the ability to find sexual satisfaction in future relationships. What does that do to the idea that absolute sexual license is the answer? destroys it. I want you to hear what Dr. Dr. Sandhya Remarca has to say. She and her co-authors published a paper that's available through the National Institute of Health. Entitled The Relationship Between Multiple Sexual Partners in Anxiety, Depression, and Substance Dependence Disorders, a cohort study. I'm sure you have this queued up on your Amazon list, right? This is the next one in your reading list, but just in case it's not, let me just share you a couple of quotes. This isn't from a Christian quote unquote perspective. Uh, This isn't a biased institute that's trying to push a quote-unquote Christian narrative. But listen to what Dr. Ramarca identifies in her study. This study established a strong association between the number of sexual partners and later substance disorder, especially for women, which persisted beyond prior substance use and mental health problems more generally. What is she saying here? The greater the number of sexual partners somebody had, the greater likelihood of more substance disorder going forward in their lives. That's not the only thing she had to say further in this study. As she talks about, the, it's in the discussion phase of the study and saying wh- what this study means in practical terms, she, she said this. The fourth intriguing possibility is that it is something about having multiple sexual partners itself which puts people at a risk of substance disorder. For instance, it may be due to the impersonal nature of such relationships. Tinder, Bumble, and the hookup culture. Or it might be that multiple failed relationships create anxiety about initiating new relationships. Self-medication with substances may be one way of dealing with this interpersonal anxiety. Specifically, feelings of loneliness and hopelessness are related to substance use. And drinking alcohol to cope with negative emotions has been shown to result in alcohol problems. Pause button there. Who's shocked by that last statement? Drinking alcohol to cope with the negative emotions has been shown to result in alcohol problems. If you have been in, in the church for five minutes and somebody brings up the question of recreational drinking, which I think we can make a good biblical case that recreational drinking is not a part of God's will for our lives, but that's not our discussion tonight. But if you've ever heard that topic broached in a Bible class, you have heard some older brother or older sister pop up, raise their hand and say, you know what, you never develop the drinking problem if you never do what? If you never take the first drink. Lo and behold, that's exactly what science is telling us, isn't it? That's exactly what Dr. Remarque is saying there at the very end. That drinking alcohol to cope with negative emotions has been shown to result in alcohol problems. Shock of all shocks. It doesn't start unless we let it start. Impersonal nature of relationships, multiple failed relationships, drinking alcohol and using substances to cope with negative emotions. The idea that somehow we're going to find a meaning and purpose and fulfillment and happiness and joy in this philosophy is exposed that's not where joy is that's not where peace is that's not where fulfillment is that's not where happiness is this world fails but how many of us who were older knew that already how many of us went down that path trying to find happiness and peace and fulfillment and found out it didn't turn out that way Isn't that why we have the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs? Proverbs as we know it really picks up in chapter 10 when we start getting those short, pithy statements of truth. But those first nine chapters of Proverbs, that's a father writing a letter to his son. That is Solomon writing to his children, writing to his grandchildren, saying, this is how I lived my life. This is how I messed up. You don't do what I did. We need to hear this from our older folks in church. We need, our younger people need to hear that. This world fails. Radical individualism can't support itself. When you've got two wills in conflict, which will rules? There's no answer in radical individualism. Relativism denies itself and leads to lawlessness. But in contradiction to that, God offers light and God offers truth in Jesus. Look at John chapter 8 with me. As a counter to each of these, we find answers in Scripture. John chapter 8 and verse 12, Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but he will have the light of of life. Jesus is light, Jesus is truth. John 14 and verse 6, right? I am the way, I am the truth, I am the light. No man comes to the Father except by me. The sexual revolution is fleeting and empty. The The, the biblical perspective doesn't say sex is a bad thing. And and. and talk about uncomfortable conversations we need to have as parents and uncomfortable conversations we sometimes need to have in our bible classes and in our sermons you know that's one of them our kids need to hear that sex isn't a bad thing cuz you sit in counsel with people premarital counseling who may have heard all of their lives Sex is bad, sex is wrong, avoid sex. And then the night of their wedding, you tell them what? Here's a blessing God has given you, go enjoy it. And 20 years of, let's just admit it, bad teaching is supposed to be overcome in one night? You want to talk about setting somebody up for some cognitive dissonance and trying to work through some heavy emotional space. That's it. Can we recognize, can we affirm, can we talk to our kids, can we preach this in our churches? Sex is not something that's bad. It's something that's given to us by God for a number of purposes, one of which is enjoyment, is intimacy. But God is always directing these things for us, shows us the proper place the proper realm for sexual activity. And it's in marriage. It's in the confines of marriage. One of the things Dr. Radarka's study gets further into is the idea of a lack of intimacy and trust and safety in these relationships when you're just serially going from one person to the other. Of course we're going to find problems there. That's not the way that God designed it. Lo and behold, science is figuring that out now. Just like science figured it out with bloodletting, just like science figured it out with washing hands, just like science figured it out with the earth being a globe. God's Word revealed it a long time ago. It just took science a few years to catch up. Sexual relationship finds meaning in marriage. What real peace does that sexual revolution give? Radical individualism fails because what happens when someone else's will conflicts with mine? Relativism fails because you can't absolutely affirm there is no truth. The sexual revolution fails because science is steadily confirming the destructive results of absolute sexual license. Pillar after pillar after pillar of culture collapses under the weight of itself and under the weight of examination. So what do we do? What can we do? How do we counteract the weight of a culture that is so far away from God that we're looking at other humans and saying, you're an animal? When we're looking at other humans and saying, you are whatever you tell me you are. How do we handle that? What can I do? Remember where we talked about earlier, our spheres of influence? That's where we work. That's where we operate. In our homes, in our schools, in the organizations we belong to, in the local church. Those spheres of influence that we have, that's where we get to work. What can I do? I can emphasize the concept of truth to the next generation. I can show the logical fallacy of saying that there is no truth. I can affirm the existence of truth. And going along with that, part of affirming truth is I can affirm that man is the deliberate creation of God. You want to talk about what really sets macroevolution evolution apart from a biblical worldview. It's the idea that man is the deliberate creation of God. But do you know how you get rid of all the flaws which the Me Too movement rightly exposed? Do you know how you get rid of the racism that various movements in our country have rightly exposed over the years. You know how you get rid of that? It's not by looking at each other and affirming that we are just a product of evolution from animals and organisms before us and that we're going to continue in that evolution forward to be some other being in the future. When we tell people they're animals, we ought not be surprised that they act like it. But do you know what does answer racism? Do you know what does answer abuse and assault? Things like that. Affirming each and every one of us, sinner or saint, righteous or unrighteous, affirming that each one of us is made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. What does Moses record for us? He created them in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. That's how you defeat racism. That's how you defeat the attitudes that lead people to commit sexual assault and things like that by affirming that each and every one of us are the deliberate creation of God and merely because of that fact we are people who are worthy of value, dignity, and respect. I can emphasize the truth that marriage is reserved for a man and for a woman. Jesus in Matthew 19 roots his teaching on marriage where? All the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Have you noticed that when folks try to, when folks try to overturn the biblical worldview, where do they always start? They don't start in Matthew. They don't start in John. They certainly don't start in the book of Revelation. Where do they start? Genesis. You get rid of the idea of man as the deliberate creation of God, you get rid of the idea of people being made in the image of God, you get rid of marriage. Genesis chapter 3, you get rid of sin and evil, and Satan. Get rid of all that. What do you have left? What can I do? I can affirm the truth that's revealed in Scripture. I can affirm the idea that marriage is reserved for a male and a female. For this reason, shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two, the two, shall become one flesh. It's a cycle that's created by God, right? Man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the process continues itself, doesn't it? What can I do? I can emphasize the concept of truth to the next generation. What else can I do? I can work to instill godly values in those who are around me. Look at John chapter 8. Here is Jesus interacting uh, with this woman who was taken in adultery, right? John chapter 8. And what did Jesus do? Here is somebody who was caught up in sin. There was absolutely no doubt. This woman was caught in adultery in the very act of adultery. She was caught in sin. And what did Jesus do? Woman, where are your, where are your accusers? Did no one condemn you? Verse 10. He said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. There's a lot of things Jesus could have said to her. But it becomes very apparent in reading that text, she was aware of her sin and she was ready to turn away from it. Here is Jesus lovingly responding to somebody who was in sin while refusing to compromise truth. That is a hard thing to do in our culture as it moves more and more today, but it is something we have absolutely got to develop within ourselves. It's balancing out not compromising the truth while at the same time responding lovingly to those who are around us, even those who are caught up in sin. What else can I do? I can mirror then a Christ-like ethic in my life. Look there at 1 Peter chapter 2. We are almost done. I appreciate your good attention tonight. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. I can mirror that Christ-like ethic in my own life. What is that Christ-like ethic? 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose, Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Jesus is our pattern. He is our example. Specifically, Peter is going to talk here about suffering, undergoing hardship. Follow in his steps, verse 22, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found within his mouth. We're supposed to follow Jesus' example of holiness and sinlessness. But in the context of suffering, verse 23, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your soul. Being like Jesus. Making the decision to follow him. Even when people mock us and ridicule us and revile us and belittle us. Not returning those things back to people because how easy is that to do? How many of us have seen a Facebook argument go well? Nobody's hands up, right? Because they don't. Because what do people start doing just exactly that? Christians can't be like that. That means we've got to shut down our Twitter, shut down our Facebook. It means we've got to shut down Twitter, shut down Facebook. But I've got a mirror Christ in my life, and that includes when people are mocking me and belittling me. And finally, what can I do? I can make God and His Word a part of my life, a deliberate part of my life. We were coming home from a vacation Bible school in Conway, Arkansas one time. This is back when we lived at Gladewater. My wife's with me here tonight. We were pulling into the driveway, and she goes, Tyler, we have a tree growing in our gutters. Not necessarily a phrase you expect to hear. We have a tree growing in our gutters. Audrey had been telling me for weeks now I needed to clear out the gutters. What had happened while we were gone? Oak tree. Dropped an acorn. Some soil and some roof material and everything else had been found up there. What had that oak, what had that acorn done? Started growing to an oak tree. Oak tree in my gutters. That just happened accidentally, right? One of those things that happens. I hope that's not how we're treating our Christianity. I hope that's not how we're raising our kids. Just hoping that we're going to drive home one day and, hey, they're going to make a decision to serve Jesus. Great if that happens, but I'd much rather be deliberate with that. Make the effort Make the effort to have these difficult conversations before the world has these conversations with my kid. I can make God and His word a deliberate part of my life. First John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. John's simple words, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lusts. But The one who does the will of God lives forever. But folks, that's what we've seen tonight. Radical individualism, relativism, absolute sexual license, that's the world. And it crumbles. We don't have to wait to the dawn of eternity to see it crumble. We can look at it logically right now and see it crumble. What a terrible place to build our lives. On the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life that are fading away. But if we choose to build our lives on the will of God, that's where we'll find life. The very thing that Jesus calls us to, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Don't you think part of that calling to unburden ourselves is to unburden ourselves from a world, from societies, from culture that don't offer any real solutions to the problems and hardships that we face? If you're struggling under the weight of a society and a culture that doesn't give any answers, we invite you to find Jesus the hope and the forgiveness that's available in him. Come to Me, all you who labor heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the offer. Maybe as a Christian, you look at your life, you've been buying into these philosophies and haven't been following the Lord like you should. You've got a chance to make a change tonight. We want to pray with you. We want to encourage you. We want to help you. If we can help you in any way respond to the gospel tonight, would you come while we stand? While we stand.